Good morning. I'm Tim Partlow. I'm not the regular preacher here. Of course, you knew that when you looked up here because I wear a tie. I want to add my welcome to um, everybody who is here as well as those who are watching live or who may watch this later. I want to say a special hello to my friend Dean in North Carolina. I also want to give my apologies up front to, uh, to Jose. Uh, he's having to translate for me. And, uh, <laughs> okay, have fun. The, the real bad part is that I understood that Sarah was going to be translating, and so I prayed for Sarah. Early this morning, I prayed for her that God would give her the right words even if I didn't. And um, I don't know, was that prayer going to translate to Jose or not? It'll, but I think we'll be okay. Uh, Patterson Morgan is our regular preacher. One of the things I admire about him is his vulnerability, his openness. And, and there's been several times that I remember him coming up here and saying, um, my heart is heavy. I'm carrying a burden today. And he would adjust sometimes his message as a result of that. Um, I like to joke and have fun, but in all seriousness, I want to tell you that Angie and I have very heavy hearts. We, we have a, a child who is struggling mightily. And that's not surprising because there are a lot of struggles in this world. They started when Adam and Eve decided to take a shortcut to become like God, and, and we have had struggles ever since. And I know that we're not alone with heavy hearts. I know that in this room there are people who have concerns about children, about friends, about co-workers. And so what, what I would like to do is, is I would like to pray for people who are struggling right now. Because I know that as I go to God and I say, my child is struggling, he says, I know, I've got several billion children struggling in the same way. And so he knows and he cares and God is good all the time. And so let's, let's pray to him. Father, we do come to you right now. And we come to you with, um, with tears. We come to you with burdens. And Father Angie and I come to you to pray for our child who is struggling. And Father, I know that, that there are... Probably everybody in this room can think of somebody in their life that is struggling right now. And so, Father, I'm going to ask them to think or even speak the name of the person that they are carrying a burden for. And Father, listen to those names. Listen to the hearts that are calling out to you. And Father, we pray for healing. We know that some people struggle physically, some emotionally, some spiritually, some mentally. And Father, we just pray for your healing. We pray, Father, for you to lift the burden off our shoulder. Father, give us the strength to give that burden to you. 
as we carry these burdens, as our hearts are broken, help us, Father, to realize that your love is new every morning. Help us to know that joy is there for us because of Jesus. And so, Father, listen now to the hearts and to the names of all the people in this room who have somebody that they're thinking about who is struggling. And Father, we pray for healing. We pray for wisdom, for patience, and for strength as we try to help those. And Father, we know that it's in your hands and help us to leave it there. In your son's name we pray. Amen. I wanted to share just briefly how I came to be preaching today. Um, I have, uh, I'm not a regular preacher, never have been, but I have preached hundreds of times in my lifetime. And what happens when you do that is you start thinking in sermons. And so you'll see a movie or you'll read a story or, and you'll go, hey, you know, that, that, could, that could preach. And you start thinking of how... So a few months ago, this, this came to me and I started thinking about it. And over the last few weeks, it, it kind of developed steam. And, and I had purposed that after the first of the year, I would call Patterson and say, Patterson, I, I, I got a sermon in my hip pocket. So if you wake up not feeling well or if, uh, you know, you need to be gone... Uh, I, you know, you can call me at the last minute, I'll be okay. And um, I, I didn't make that call. Uh, Patterson called me on Tuesday. And he had a couple things to talk to me about, and then he said, hey, is there any chance you could preach this Sunday? And I just think it's wonderful the way that God works those situations out. And so as we get started, I'm going to um, tell you a story from my life. I guess we can call this the story of September 3rd. It actually starts September 1st, 2020. I went for my annual physical. Little caveat, it had been three and a half years since I'd been in for a physical, so I'm not sure the annual part really works, but I, I got there for my physical. And at the end of it, the doctor called me into his office, and he said, you are doing great. You are 60 years old and you're on no medication, Probably could exercise a little bit more. So you're doing great. I went, I had lunch with my daughter, Olivia. You know, I'd fasted all day for the blood work, and so we had this wonderful lunch, this new restaurant she had found, biscuits with these chicken tenders, gravy over it. Oh, it was fabulous. I remember where I was on uh, Thursday, September 3rd, sitting at the end of the table, doing some work, my computer opened, my phone rings. I look at it and I go, that's odd, it's my doctor's office. I answer it and I go, ooh, this is even odder, it's my doctor. And he said, you have diabetes. Now, you guys are probably familiar that, you know, you get borderline diabetes, you begin to have diabetes. No, I did it really well. My A1C, if you're familiar, was 10.9. I had two and a half times the amount of glucose you're supposed to have in your bloodstream. Um, I had it real good. And, um, and so he said, I want to see you tomorrow. And so Friday morning, Angie and I went into the doctor. And, uh, and this is, um, uh, oh, by the way, Thursday afternoon after getting the call, I went for a long bike ride. I changed my eating that night. I exercised the next day. 
And uh, but we went and, and we saw the doctor and he put me on a, a couple of the medications, very common, typical for people who are beginning with diabetes. And, um, and Angie was going out of town. I, 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 we met our other daughter, she and Anna went out of town. And um, I went to the pharmacy, filled the prescriptions, got the glucose meter and the glucose strips. And, uh, and, and, and I'll just be honest, I, I was in tears driving home. It was, it was just so emotional and traumatic, shocking. And um, so I got home and I kept up the exercise and the good eating and I started taking the pills. And um, Sunday morning, I just didn't feel like I could make it to church. I called Ted and Kathy and they came and picked up the, our children that were home and took them to church. Um, the next day I was feeling worse. Angie came home, couldn't believe what I looked like. Um, our, our neighbor, uh, Deborah, Deborah Hollins, recommended that I go to the ER. And so I went to the ER. They took me to ICU where I spent three days with diabetic, diabetic ketoacidosis. Kind of a little serious thing that you can get. And so I got out. And, um, and because of my reaction to the medicine, I was insulin dependent. And so I was taking 30 units of, of insulin um, each night. And through, you know, careful con control of the diet, trying to exercise over time, we were able to cut that back to about 15 units. But um, Angie and I had a date night where we happened to, to go to Books A Million and uh, we started looking at some books related to diabetes, and we believe that God directed us to a book called Mastering Diabetes. And it is a totally different approach to managing the disease. And, uh, and after reading that, um, a revolutionary change to my diet, completely opposite of most of the advice that you get for, for diabetes. And um, within two or three weeks, um, I was completely off insulin the doctor. I said, I'm off insulin. <laughs> Didn't ask first, just got off it. <laughs> and uh, and it, as the summer progressed, um, I was feeling better, I was feeling stronger. And so Angie wanted to do something for me. She knew that Labor Day had been very bad in 2020. Labor Day was the day that I ended up going into the ICU. And so she wanted to make that day a better memory than ICU. And so Timothy lives in Madison. She flew him down so that he could spend the weekend with us. James and Abigail happened to be in town. Uh, and so Angie made sure that, that they and Connor and Anna and Olivia would all be available that weekend. And so we had a family weekend, um, scheduled family pictures. And you know, sometimes God looks at the things that we do and He says, you know, that's nice. I think I can one-up you. On the morning of September 3rd, Abigail went into labor. Now, her labor with Micaiah, her first son, was about 24 hours. Not so this time. James had worked fairly close to the house that day, so they called him, he got home. They loaded up Abigail and Angie, 
And they started heading across town to Ascension St. Thomas, where they had a, a reservation to have the child. Um, James had gotten special training in terms of driving skills during his year. He had found out that stop signs and red lights are suggestions. The posted speed limit is a minimum, not a maximum. And hey, you know the shoulder of the road? That's a passing lane. But with all of his skills, it became obvious that they were not going to make it across town. And so they called the closest hospital, Summit Medical Center. And they drove directly there. They pulled into the ER, uh, you know, under ambulance entry where they, they pulled in. And they got out and, and they went in and, and, uh, they, and they were prepared. They, they, they took James and Abigail up to the, up to the room. Uh, Angie went out, moved the car, parked it, went back in. Somebody took her upstairs and her second grandchild was in the arms of Abigail. That's how quick it came. Summit Medical Center is where I spent three days in the ICU. A year after I got the diagnosis, he was born. But wait, it gets better. Abigail and James had decided to name their second son Boaz Courage Rucker. Boaz, of course, is the greatest kinsman redeemer in the Old Testament. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. What is a kinsman redeemer? You've heard that term before. The kinsman redeemer is a male relative who has the responsibility to help a relative in need. Now, we think of certain things with the kinsman re redeemer, but there's, there's really at least four different responsibilities that they could have as a kinsman redeemer. Uh, one of them that you may not think about is that they are the avenger of death. If a murder is committed, uh, you know, in the Old Testament, an eye for an eye, a, a tooth for a tooth, murder was repaid with murder, and it was the kinsman redeemer who had the right to avenge, to take the person's life. And remember, if it was an accident, uh, you know, the axe handle flew off and hit somebody in the head, then the person who, who committed that could escape by getting to a sanctuary city, and, and living in that sanctuary city. But if they left that city, the kinsman redeemer could take their life. Another responsibility was the idea of the leveret marriage. If a, if a man died uh, without having male offspring, his brother would take uh, the widow as his bride, and the first male born would be the inheritor of, of the brother's um, land, property. Uh, you, you might remember Leveret marriage from Luke. The Sadducees decided to trick Jesus. Now, the Sadducees don't even believe in an, in an afterlife. But they had, you know, they had their unstoppable question that had gotten everybody before. They said, hey, a brother marries, and uh, he doesn't, uh, didn't have any children, he dies. And so his brother takes that woman, they don't have any children, and he dies. The third brother. And they progress this through seven brothers. Now stop right here. Why are we not investigating this woman? 
What is she doing to these men? But regardless, they said, hey, she's been married to all seven of them. Who's she married to in heaven? But that's the idea of the leveret marriage. Jesus had no problem handling the question. Uh, but leveret marriage, um, slavery redemption. Um, one of the things you could do if you became very poor, you could not feed your family, is you could sell yourself into slavery. And, and then that money could, could pay. Um, if somehow you could accumulate enough money, you could buy yourself free. But there was also a provision in the law that your uncle or your uncle's son or a close relative could buy you out, could redeem you from slavery. And then the one that we probably think about uh, probably the most often is the idea of the property redemption. And so if you, you have to sell property in order to survive, the kinsman redeemer can come in and purchase that property so it remains in the family. It's kind of based on this idea that the promised land was God's land. And he allocated it to the tribes and then through the tribes to the families to use the land, but it really belonged to God. And so that's why there were these rules and regulations to keep property within the families where it had been assigned. And so uh, as we think about the kinsman redeemer, we're going to take a look at the book of Ruth. Now, I told Angie I, I got to have something controversial in every sermon that I preach, and so here it is. Uh, I don't think Ruth is a good name for that book. Now, I don't think lightning's going to strike because I don't think the Holy Spirit scribed the titles. I think that came later, okay? And so I think I'm okay in saying this. A better name for the book would be Naomi's Redemption. That's what the story's really about. The story's about Naomi. Ruth's the key part, but Naomi's redemption would be a different option. The, the story starts with Naomi and her husband Ahimelech. They have uh, run into hard times. There's famine in the land. And so he might have sold some of his property, uh, but he um, and, and Naomi and their two sons head to Moab. Now, they lived there a total of 10 years. Not long after they were there, it seems, uh, Ahimelech dies. And then her sons are married to Moabite women. And then they die. So it's, it's kind of weird. In this period, the three die. A lot of people have said, were they being punished? And a lot of people say, were they being punished for marrying Moabite women and for living in Moab? I don't think it was so much the Mary and Moabite women, if they were punished, and that is a possibility, if they were being punished, it probably was because they had given up on the promised land. And there were provisions in Scripture that said you don't leave unless the economy gets, and it's described, it's told how bad the economy has to get before you would leave. Uh, but Ahimelech may have jumped the gun in terms of leaving the promised land. If he was punished, that might be the reason why. But regardless, he's died. The two sons have died. And so Naomi um, hears that things maybe are better in Israel. Um, it's not gone well for her where she is. And so she decides to head back home. 
And you have to realize that at that time and place, there, there, there is no social security system. There, there aren't, um, you know, tin care. Uh, there, there, there aren't food stamps that she, can, that she can use. And so particularly a woman, an older woman, um, could be in real trouble in this kind of situation. So she, she decides to go home and, um, and her daughters uh, decide to go with her. Now one of the things I want to point out here that will be Im- important in a minute, sort of, is that um, I think a lot of times we read Scripture and we read through it fast and, you know, 10 years in Moab... And so we do our math and we go, okay, so Ruth must have been 30 years old or so when they headed back to to Bethlehem. I don't know if you've thought of that or if you just never even thought about how old she might be. But remember, 10-year total period, the sons don't marry until after Ahelamech, you know what I'm talking about, is dead. They marry, but they've had no children. And so the likelihood is that the sons were not of marrying age when they went to Moab. A few years later they are, they marry, but they weren't married long enough to have had children. And so I would suggest to you that that Ruth and, and Orpah may have still been teenagers and certainly not past their early 20s. And this kind of makes sense when Naomi says, I'm going back, and they say, we're going with you. And she says, don't, don't do that. What, what do I have to offer you? Go, you know, go back to your family. They both say, no, 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 we're going with you. But she says, what, you could go to your families. They would take care of you, which was true for that time in that culture. And you could marry again. What, what do you think I'm going to be able to do? And she talks about the leveret marriage. Do you think that I'm going to have sons and you're going to be able to marry those sons? And even if I did, would you wait around that long for them to even come back? And Orpah says, good point, and she goes home. Now, I, I, don't, want to, I don't want to slide her, but I will point out she does not have a book in the Bible named after her. <laughs> Ruth says... I'm going with you. Your God is my God. Your people are my people. She was saying, I am no longer comfortable here in Moab. I belong to you and to your faith and to your people. That's who I am now. I'm going with you. And so she was a young woman of character, and she heads back to Israel with with Naomi. Now, I, I said there wasn't a welfare system. Um, in, in fact, in Israel, there was a little bit of one. They had this process called gleaning. And so the idea was that um, if you were poor, uh, and it was harvest time, you could follow the harvesters. And so while they're harvesting, they were not allowed to take a fine rake behind them to gather everything up. Instead, the little stuff that drops along the way was to be left so that the the poor, the disadvantaged people who need it could could pick that up and and they could get some food. They could eat off of that. Um, You know, in in, in fact, uh, a little bit of a side note here. I probably shouldn't go here, but a little bit of a side note here. We, a lot of times, look at the Bible through our eyes of today. 
And, and we come up with some, some bad conclusions when we do that. And so we look at the Bible and go, wow, women were mistreated. Okay? In culture at that time, women were property. Women were often mistreated. But what the Bible does, what Scripture points out, is that God's commandments to the Israel created provisions to protect and to benefit women. And so even the idea of the levered marriage, which sounds a little bit weird and bizarre, is something that would give them a home, give them a name. They would be able to have food. They would be able to continue to live. Uh, this idea of the gleaning. And so if there was a woman who, who couldn't work, but she needed food, there was this opportunity to do that. And so if you, if you take a look at the times in the Scripture, you'll see that the laws to Israel were significantly more advanced in terms of caring for women, caring for the poor, caring for the foreigners even. We often think about Israel being, well, they just kill anybody who's not in Israel. No! There were provisions. They, the, the Bible says in, in the law, it says, remember what it was like for you in Egypt. Don't treat people like that that live in your land. And so there were provisions that really made it more advanced. And, and this idea of gleaning was another part. And, you know, let's go to the New Testament. Okay, Paul says, hey, you know what? In Christ, there's no male or female. No slave or free. We're equal in the sight of God through Christ. So, um, unfortunately, men have used Scripture to create a system that then gets blamed on God's Word. But if you look at it correctly, God's Word was elevating women, protecting women, advancing women, uh, and, and that would be a lesson that I think we should take from that. Alright, so this idea of gleaning, um, you know, Naomi and Ruth have got to eat. And, and so Ruth is, is young, she's strong, and she goes out to glean, and uh, she ends up in the field of this man named Boaz. That's right, Boaz. A field named after the man you're named after. And she's gleaning there, and it says that Boaz noticed her. Now, why do you think Boaz noticed her? All right, you've got to be careful about not interpreting Scripture just through your own eyes, but I want to tell you something. I remember the very first time I saw Angie. I, oh, I still remember. <laughs> she was attractive. She was cute. Now, I didn't even really get to know her for a couple of years after that. And we didn't even start dating until even time after that. But I never have forgotten that first time that I saw her. I took notice of her. And, and, uh, and I think that, that Ruth is young. I think she's fit. And at least to Boaz's eyes, she was attractive. And he noticed her. And he said, who is this woman? And he starts to get some detail about her. Now, by the time that I actually started dating Angie, I knew quite a bit about her. I knew her character. I knew her values. I knew a lot of things that we shared together. And I found out she was the complete package as I decided to pursue her. Well, Boaz finds out about Ruth. 
and finds out not only is she cute, but she's out here working to support herself and her mother-in-law. That she came from another country. She could have gone back home to her dad, but she came here and she is helping Naomi. And so he's impressed by that. And so he, he, he tells her. He said, I, I hear what you're doing. Um, he said, stay, stay in my fields. C- collect with, with, with my women. Keep coming back here. And, and then he, he spreads the word among his workers and says, don't touch her. Do not harm her. Do not lay a finger on her. Oh, and by the way, go ahead and drop a few extra things when she's working behind you. And you know what? Even if she gets into an area she's not supposed to, don't correct her. Just let her have whatever she gathers. And then they would, they would have a meal and he would pour a bunch of more and, and, and give her extra food so she would go home and, and she would give Naomi her leftovers from the meal and it would be enough for, for Naomi to eat that night and she'd put some in the refrigerator for the next day. <laughs> now, you know, the conversation that went in, in that house, my... How did you come up with all of this? I met the nicest man today. And, and he gave me some extra food and he just treated me really kindly. And Naomi says, oh, he's crushing on you. Oh, no, no, he treats everybody like that. He's just a nice guy. And Naomi goes, uh-huh. And Naomi does her research and she says, you know what? He's our kinsman redeemer, guardian redeemer for our family. And so she keeps going to that field. He keeps treating her well. And as they get to the end of the season, Naomi coaches Ruth on what to do. And so she goes to the threshing floor at night wearing her nicest clothes, washed, perfumed, and she uncovers his feet. And she lays at his feet. Let's not pretend here. She was being pretty forward. She was pretty forward, but she had the right to. Because in the system of leveret marriage, the woman could go to the man and say, you have this responsibility. And so, in essence, that's what she's saying as she uncovers his feet. And, And Boaz, I think he was shy. I think he really liked her. But he wakes up and she's there at his feet and he understands the implication. And he goes, blessed are you. You could have chased after any of the young men, the good looking men. But here you pay attention to me. And she could have. It would have been easier for her to have gone home and married somebody else. It would have been easier for her to have just married one of the young men in Bethlehem. But she honored her mother-in-law. She took care of her. And so, so Boaz says, you know what? There is one who is closer than me. Let me back up just a second. She was in her right to make that claim. But... Don't kid yourself, it was a very vulnerable thing for her to do. She was opening herself up to him. 
She could have been taken advantage of. She probably could have been harmed. She could have been rejected. And that doesn't feel good. She was vulnerable as she presented herself to him. Now, what does it take to be a kinsman redeemer? There's some qualifications. Obviously, by the title, you have to be kin. You've got to be related, and there's a hierarchy in terms of relationship, in terms of who's closest. You have to be willing. And so even though these provisions were there, you, you couldn't be forced into it. You had to be a willing uh, participant to, to act in any of these roles of the kinsman redeemer. Um, you had to be able to do it. And so we talked earlier about a slave, and, and you could redeem a slave, but if you were a slave yourself, it doesn't matter if you were technically a kinsman redeemer. You couldn't be one as a slave if you couldn't redeem the other person. So you had to have the financial wherewithal, the appropriate status in society. Uh, and then when you did the redemption, um, it, you couldn't put it on a payment plan. You, you had to pay it all at once. You had to pay the full price. There weren't partial redemptions. You had to make the full commitment. You had to make uh, that, that payment. So there was a, a, a nearer kin. Boaz recognizes it. He says, uh, you know, don't worry, I'm going to take care of this. And so he resolves the issue. And you remember the, the other fellow, they meet at the gate where everybody comes by. Boaz arranges ten judges uh, to be their witnesses. Uh, the, the fellow comes by and he says, hey, good brother, let's have a chat. He said, you know, Naomi's back and she has some property she's going to sell. Would you be interested in buying it? Yes, I would. Okay, it comes with a bride. Malon's widow uh, is a part of the deal. And he says, <laughs> I can't do that. Now, a lot of times we think negatively about him because of that, and it may be, may be justified. He has a valid point. He would have to buy the property from his own wealth, and then he would have a male child with her, and that property would go to that male child in that family. And so if he became the kinsman redeemer, he would be giving away a part of his fortune. And so there was a cost to him. Um, we don't know what all he was thinking. He may have been a very pious religious person who said, I'm not marrying somebody from outside of, of Israel. I'm not marrying somebody from, from Moab. So we don't know the reasons behind um, other than his, his concern about his inheritance. But he passes, and Boaz says, I will. And so he marries Ruth. And from that marriage comes Obed, comes Jesse, comes David, the greatest king of Israel, and through that line comes Jesus. But what's great about this story is how it ends. They have Obed, and guess who carries Obed around all the time? Naomi. So much so that the people of the town said, Naomi has a baby boy. Maybe a little bit like Papa Tim does with his Boaz, maybe. But it's Naomi's redemption. When she came back to, to Israel, she said, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. I'm, I'm enveloped in bitterness. 
And at the end of the story, she is a nurse to her grandson and gets to spend good time. And her life is redeemed as well. She won't worry about eating. She won't worry about protection. She won't worry about safety uh, because she will have been taken care of. So Boaz is a great person. Uh, I said something earlier. I want to make sure that, that you heard it. I said that Boaz is the greatest kinsman redeemer in the Old Testament. It's possible there were greater ones, but in terms of what's recorded, Boaz was the greatest one in the Old Testament. But it gets trumped because when you get to the New Testament, there's a better kinsman redeemer. And the thing we have to remember, and by the way, this is something else that, that I love about what Patterson does when he's preaching. Patterson does such an amazing job of connecting the Old Testament to the New Testament. It is one book that is God's story. And it is interconnected, and it flows, and it supports, and it builds on, and it points to. And Boaz was a type, a representation, an example of what Jesus would be. And so Jesus becomes our kinsman redeemer. How could He be the kinsman redeemer? Well, Jesus became our kin. This whole last month, we spent a lot of time thinking about the fact that He became flesh. That He took on our skin. That He lived here. That He felt hunger. That He felt pain. That He felt sorrow. That He felt sadness. That He felt joy. All of the things that He felt, He became human. He became our kin. He wasn't half God, half human. He was fully human. And He was fully God. Hard to wrap our heads around that. But He became our kin. Secondly, He was willing. You know, sometimes in history, people have blamed the Jews for killing Jesus. Sometimes people have blamed the Romans for killing Jesus. They played their part. But what Scripture is clear over and over again was that Jesus came willingly. That he gave Himself willingly. That He spilled His blood willingly. We have the great scene in the garden where He says, Dad, just one, can we go over this one more time? Is there any other way we can do this? If not, it's Your will. I'm going to do it. And He does it. And He sacrifices Himself and He spills His blood. Remember the third characteristic was you had to be able. What separates us from God? Sin. Sin separates us from God. Puts us in a place where we are slaves to sin. You either were or you are a slave to sin. That's a part of our human nature. We become slaves to sin. Jesus never became a slave to sin. Jesus was sinless. And so because of that, He was able to be our sacrifice. He was able to be our Redeemer because He did not have sin. He did not become a slave to it. And He remained His position and He remained in His purity. And of course, you have to pay the price in full. And there is no fuller, more complete price than the giving of yourself 
the giving of your body. He paid the ultimate price. He gave Himself for us, and He paid for us completely. Boaz is a great story of the kinsman redeemer. Jesus is the truly great example of the kinsman redeemer. So, so what's the purpose of this message today? Okay, one minor deal is, is I wanted my grandson to have a recorded lesson of his Papa Tim talking about who he's named after. But what's the purpose of this sermon? Maybe good information, but if there's not a real purpose to it, if we can't be actionable about it, is there any value to it? And so I would suggest three possibilities. One is maybe you haven't taken Jesus on as your Savior. Maybe you haven't claimed what He offers as your kinsman redeemer. And so if you have not, today's the opportunity. Let me double check. Yes, it's full. And so you could come today and you can accept what Christ is offering you. Now remember, Ruth had to be vulnerable. She had to open herself. We do the same thing when we come to Jesus. Because Jesus offers, but He doesn't force Himself on us. Remember, Boaz was a little bit shy, it seems like. Boaz was a consummate gentleman. He did not force himself on Ruth. And he was tickled when she showed interest in him. Jesus doesn't force Himself on us. But if you will be vulnerable, if you will realize, I can't redeem myself, and come to Jesus, He will redeem you. Second, you might be a Christian like me. Been a Christian for 50-something years. I remember a year or so ago, it was my Jubilee year. I'd been a Christian for 50 years, so I think I'm at 52, something like that. But one of my biggest struggles is I still want to do my part. I still want to be good enough that it kind of impresses God. I don't really want to fully depend on Jesus. And that's been one of my biggest struggles. Maybe you're like me. What you need to understand is we've got to quit. We've got to stop. We've got to realize that Jesus is the one who pays the price. Not my good deeds. Not my good intentions. Not my children that come from me and do great things. No. Jesus is the one who saves. And so we've got to give up Lay those burdens at the cross and let Him be our Savior. Third, you might not be in category one or two. You may kind of have it together. You might. You might understand that Jesus is the one who has saved you. You might understand your relationship to Him well. And if that's the case, good. But share that news with other people. This has been a simple message. All I've given you today is the Gospel. The good news that God so loved the world He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish, 
but have everlasting life. That is the good news. And so if you understand that, if you realize what Jesus has done for you, share that with other people. And when you share that with other people, you will be giving God the glory and you will be giving people hope. And that's what we want to do. And so, you're in one of those three categories. Think about the action step that I suggested for you. And and right now, we're going to sing. And while we sing, we're going to have some elders down front. And I would encourage you to come and talk to them. I would encourage you to come and and pray with them if there's anything that, that they can lift you up with, if they could pray with you, pray over you. If there's somebody else in this room that you would be comfortable praying with, go to them. Go and pray. You know, we're starting a new year. If there's anybody in this room that you have had a conflict with, go go to them and pray. You don't have to resolve it right here, but go to them and pray. And just indicate that, that, that that you want it to change. Let's be a praying community. Mike Wagner's lesson over the communion, the power of prayer, and how much can happen when God is glorified. Let's be a praying people and let's start that now as we stand and sing.